Welcome to the Wonder Learn Show. This is the 200th episode. Incredible how fast it's gone by. I've been recording it weekly, and here we are, just 200 weeks later. To celebrate this 200th episode, I thought I would answer some listener questions. In fact, six different questions that I've received, and here they are. I'm going to turn each one of them that are personal into a practical step as, as well. So the first question is, is, are you ever scared? Number The second question will be, what motivates you? Number three, who is your favorite author? Number four, what is your favorite quotation? Number five, what direction is the United States headed now that we are so polarized? And number six, what is the future of cryptocurrencies? So I will go ahead and answer each one of these. Let's start with number one. Are you ever scared? Short answer is no. And I'm going to give practical steps for those people who are listening who might have a tendency to get scared. First of all, what is the definition of scared? According to Merriam-Webster, it is that you are fearful, frightened, easily, not easily, but that you are frightened, and finally, a panic. And those are feelings I just don't get hit with. And I've been in some difficult situations. I was just reflecting on this. I was thinking, what would be a situation where I should have been scared? I should have been scared when somebody was strangling me to death. I was in Cameroon, and I went down a dark alley, and these two guys mugged me. And they literally, one of them came from behind and started choking me hard. I couldn't breathe. And the other guy was going through my pockets, trying to steal my phone and steal my wallet. They did manage to get my wallet, but not my phone. And that was a moment that I think I should have been really scared. Now, I certainly was um, concerned. I was pissed off. I, but I wasn't pan. I didn't have that feeling of panic and fear. For some reason, I didn't think that this guy could have a knife and he could kill me. He could strangle me to death. I never once had the, the idea that I could die in this situation, even though theoretically I could get very hurt. And I was actually relatively calm. Of course, if you had put a heart measure, I, my heart rate went up <laughs> dramatically, I'm sure. But fearful, panicking, uh, it wasn't the best way to describe my emotions at the time, it was more like I was pissed off and I was uh, frustrated, angry that this thing was happening to me. But I didn't have a feeling of, of complete panic and fear. And another time, I suppose, that I was you know, crossing a river when I was crossing the Continental Divide Trail. I, it was about a 50-meter river. It was very cold. And, and I probably should have been fearful. I was in the middle of the river. I started cramping up a bit. But again, I guess I, I, I kind of have a way to just try to stay calm. And I think I have tried to have perspective in the situation. And I think that is the key thing is that whenever you feel that kind of sense of panic, and of course, this is easier said than done. But when you have this feeling of panic, like I, sometimes I've been holding onto a rock without any kind of rope support, and I've had a long fatal drop below me, there I could panic theoretically. But I've always had this way of just kind of zeroing in on half perspective. Either one of two things. Number one, you pull back. Pull the lens back. Zoom out of your situation. Pull out to, let's say, put yourself in perspective of the entire planet and see how insignificant and small you are. And not. And this event is um, just a fleeting moment. That is one way to do it. The other way is to go micro and just focus on small things, like in the case of holding onto a rock, just looking at the tiny pieces of rock and just your fingers there and just focusing on micro stuff and, and not thinking about the fact that you could fall over and just say, all I got to do is hold on to this little piece and I'll be fine, for example. Um, I suppose the day that I actually have true fear and panic will be the day that I will die. Uh, for example, I can imagine if I'm 
plummeting, my helicopter all of a sudden stops working and I'm suddenly plummeting to the earth. I probably will fear, have fear and panic, <laughs> but by then it will be too late. Um, somebody who's shooting at me with a gun and and most certain death is coming. I'll have fear and panic. I see an asteroid fly, flying right to my house or something like that. These kind of things, that's when I'm probably going to have complete fear and panic and I'll just completely go crazy because I'll realize, whoop, the end is near. But so far, I haven't had that level of sense. I also had a sense of, not fear, but when my wife and my brother-in-law were um, lost in the Sahara Desert, high altitude, uh, I was very concerned about them. But again, it wasn't panic or fear. It was more like I was extremely concerned, very worried, and uh, and I struggled to sleep at night. It was just difficult, but it wasn't fearful. Anyway, I hope that helps. Not uh, not so much it's about me, but it's more about tips I can give to you to try to make sure that you don't succumb to fear and panic and being scared. Because ultimately, when you have that, you will function worse. Uh, human beings rarely function well when they're panicking and they're fearful. Adrenaline and having that is good, it's self-protective, but it's not everything. Um, and, and it can be debilitating and it can take you off track. All right, so let's go on to number question number two, uh, which is what motivates me? Um, many things motivate me. Um, I, but the key thing for you guys listening is to whatever those motivations are to make sure you fulfill them and, and, and satisfy them. In my case, I am motivated by curiosity about knowledge, about experiences, about you know, seeing new things, of, of meeting new people, gaining new perspectives, hearing different perspectives. Um, I'm motivated by that kind of knowledge. I'm not too motivated by money, but I'd be a liar if I wasn't at all motivated by money. Um, but those are the kind of things that I enjoy. I really, really enjoy. Uh, I, I'm motivated by living a long life. You know, for example, I would love to live uh, several thousand years. That would be great, but... <laughs> We're going to be kind of well short of that. But the point is, is that a lot of times we have motivations and we don't listen to them. You know, you might be motivated to play the guitar, but you don't, you're not that motivated to actually do it. Uh, You might be motivated, uh, you might have motivation to spend more time with your children, but you actually don't restructure your life to make sure that happens. So make sure to always uh, restructure your life. And that's what I did. I, I was motivated by travel, by seeing new things and exploring and I decided, well, you know, I better put my money where my mouth is and put my time where my mouth is, which is means that I have to give up certain things, give up wealth uh, that I could accumulate and instead focus on the, the experiences I really want to pursue. Number three, who is your favorite author? I would say Bill Bryson. I admire his way of writing. I don't model myself after him, but I would say also that my style of writing is probably closest to his. And why? Because of three elements that he does. Number one, he talks about travel. Number two, he he integrates his personal travel experiences with um, facts, figures, statistics, things about the region that are interesting, history. And number three, he injects humor. So those are the three elements that I also try to do in my uh, writing to keep the reader entertained, make them smile, uh, make them learn something, at the same time share a personal story. So I like that combination, and that's why I really like how Bill Bryson does it. 
I have a tendency to be more adventurous than Bill Bryson, and I interact, I think, more with the local people. And his one of the things I don't like about his books is that sometimes his interactions are seem very shallow. They're just kind of these quick little meetings. He doesn't seem to really dig deep into cultures, which is something I try to do. On the other hand, he must be doing something right, much better than I do, because, of course, he's 10,000 times more successful than I am as far as uh, book sales. But... And I wish he was more adventurous. Like, you know, he didn't complete the Appalachian Trail, not even half of it. Um, He did walk across England, but England's kind of short and flat. So (laughs) these are uh, some of the physical accomplishments. And he just, when he goes to Africa, he goes to Kenya. And that's his big adventure in Africa. Uh, He'll avoid uh, Central African Republic or uh, South Sudan and, and Libya and Somalia. So... That is my favorite author. Number four, what is your favorite quote? It's not my favorite quote necessarily, but it's one that I just heard Tim Ferriss mention just recently in a podcast, and he was quoting somebody else who was quoting somebody else. And that is, don't believe everything that you think. I like that quote. Don't believe everything that you think. And I think it's very apropos in today's world where we have so much confirmation bias that people chase after uh, theories that confirm they look after news sources that confirm their biases and that kind of stuff and i feel blessed that i was have a foot in four continents i i was born in north america my mom's from south america my father's from north america sorry from from europe my wife's from africa and those four continents i think gave me a perspective a little bit broader perspective and not be so prone to my biases of course do i have biases absolutely yes but i think I've really tried to make an effort to listen to other perspectives, even though they differ to mine. I seek them out. I don't shy them away. I try to keep that open mind. It's very hard to do, but and 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 it's so frustrating to see how many people fail completely at doing this and how easily people believe whatever they think. And and that's the key thing of that quote. Don't believe everything that you think. Question, 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 and really try to disprove yourself. Talk to people who have a different perspective than yours. And inevitably, what ends up happening is not so much that you will change 180. That's probably not true, but you might change by 20 degrees. You might change a little bit. You will become a little bit more nuanced in your viewpoints. You'll realize, ah, you know, this perspective, I can get it. You know, for example, let's just take one issue that just popped in my head. You know, for example, defunding the police. You might be adamant on one side of the fence or the other, but by talking to people on the other side, all of a sudden you will most likely inch over a little bit more and comprehend the other side a little bit more and not be so dogmatic and one-sided in your viewpoint on that particular issue. Uh, for example, Ukraine and Russia. Again, very polarizing issue. You know, either for or against. Very strong. And again, if you somehow try to listen and try to, for most people who are listening to this podcast are probably taking the the pro-Ukrainian side, I try to do my best to try to understand the Russian perspective and get their point of of view. Israel and Palestine, same thing. Um, Trump versus not Trump, (laughs) Um, anti-Trump. There's so many issues where people are so one-sided and I wish people say, don't believe everything that you think. Somehow stop and ask yourself, there are rational people on both sides of the debate and on an issue that is close to 50-50 or 30-70, that kind of stuff, there's got to be something there that you're missing if you're on one side of the debate. Now, if it's 99% one side and one side, then okay, maybe not. You know, like, is uh, murder of innocent children bad? Okay, <laughs> I think there you don't necessarily need to 
to think about both sides of the debate because it's pretty cut and dry. But if if it's not 99% on one side of the issue, then it's time to pause and reflect and think about things a little bit more deeply. Okay, I hope that helps. Number five, what direction is the United States headed now that we are so polarized? Okay, so right embedded in that question is an assumption that we are so polarized. And the short answer is, yes, we're polarized, but the longer answer is, well, we've always been polarized. (laughs) And so uh, I always think it's funny that people say, oh, we've never been so polarized before. I'm like, stop, wait a second. Have you heard of something called the United States Civil War? (laughs) That was kind of real polarization. That was the war that killed more people than any other war in history, even more so than World War II, which was pretty remarkable since... We're talking about something that happened in the 1860s versus the 1940s. I mean, the population in the 1940s was much higher than the 1860s. And yet, the 1860s saw far more American deaths than the, the World War II. So, just keep that in mind, first of all. During the founding of the Republic, you had Jefferson fighting against John Adams. The founding fathers were really polarized. You had Hamilton, who really wanted to have a, have a Federalist, you know, central bank and others people said no you know jefferson said no i'm totally against that and then you have of course slavery and then you have the reconstruction period where the south even though they had lost the civil war they still wanted to say fuck you to the north and just say screw you and we're going to try to do everything we can to kind of stop the blacks from from advancing in our society we're going to find one way or another to, to to impede their progress very polarized and the vietnam war was super polarizing as well there's only these brief moments in time of the U.S. United States history where we were not polarized. It was after September 11th, after the attacks then. We were not polarized for a few, maybe about a year or six months or something like that. Uh, World War II, we were not that polarized at all. We were pretty united. So again, when some sort of external conflict hits us, then we're not that polarized. But when there's nobody bothering us, really, then we bother each other. So the whole notion that we're super polarized, eh, uh, yes and no. Uh, obviously, there is some statistics that back that up. For example, m- m- there has been some surveys that I, I remember reading that the Congress has been voting along party lines. In the past, Democrats would flip to the Republican majority sometimes and vice versa. Nowadays, it's just so many votes are straight down party lines. Some people blame that it was Newt Gingrich who did this because he decided to not have any sessions he only have the congress in sessions on tuesday wednesdays and thursdays so that nowadays everybody goes home for the weekends where in the past the congressional people hung out in dc on the weekends so they had time to mingle and so democrats and republicans got to mingle get to know each other get to know their wives their children's and have some sort of rapport with them and start to realize that oh my god they're human beings too maybe i should consider their points of view and maybe we can compromise on some of these issues and so after new Gingrich said no we're just going to meet on tuesday wednesday thursday or whatever the story is now all of a sudden there's not as much camaraderie in the congress and so as a result people are don't really understand the other perspective as as well as we used to. So there could be some of that that does it. So I'm not saying there's not evidence of polarization, but I think to to have the notion that this is unprecedented in any kind of way, absolutely not. We've seen this movie before. Now, the question is, is where the United States is headed? Well, in the long, long term, some, it's kind of like the clock, that the broken clock will eventually be correct in the sense that one day the United States empire will fall. At some point it will. Why? Because every single empire has always fallen. And so inevitably, of course. Now, the question isn't whether it will fall or not. 
The answer is certainly yes. The question is, when will it fall? Will it happen in this decade? Will it happen in this century? Or will it happen in the next century? Or maybe beyond. So that's the key question. And that's a big difference. I mean, it's a big difference what's going to happen this decade, this century, or next century. But right now, the answer to me is not that clear. For example, a lot of people, the conventional wisdom, and you have people like Ray Dalio, who talks about the, these, you know, the cycles, and that he implies, he doesn't say explicitly, but he certainly implies that China is rising up and it's going to overtake the United States. That is the conventional wisdom. That is something that I kind of question and refute to a certain extent, mainly because I think that the Chinese are overrated. I think certainly they have risen, incredible, but I think they're going to slow down. They're going to hit a wall once their demographic situation hits them hard, when all of a sudden they have a huge population of retirees, and their demographic situation is far worse than that of Europe and, and certainly the United States. And that is going to slow down their growth dramatically. They're just one good recession away from having... And they really haven't had a recession for like 30 years. So they, they've really been doing super well for a long time. And their communist party the, that is currently in power may have some cracks and chinks in the army. I predicted in the year 2020 that there would be a revolution in China sometime in this decade. Now, I looked at the demographic data actually recently, and I looked at it more closely, and I realized that their bulge in their demographics well, they're still mostly in the 50s right now. They're, so I think they need to get into the 70s. So when I predicted that it was going to happen in this decade, that China would go undergo a massive change, it might actually take until the 2030s. So be aware of that, that, that that's when China could really have some big problems in the 2030s not so, or at the end of the 2020s at the earliest, where they're going to have this demographic problem, this demographic bomb that's going to hurt them well, badly. So we'll see about that. And I think that is what's going to slow down China's rise. And the other thing that hurts China is that they don't have that many friends. I mean, think about it. They're kind of friends with Russia, but not really. They're certainly not friends with, they're, I guess they're kind of friends with uh, North Korea. Well, that doesn't really do them much, right? They're certainly enemies with Japan. Japan doesn't like them. Taiwan hates them. Um, and, and a lot of the countries around them don't like them. India doesn't like them. So they have no allies around them. And then you look at Africa. I mean, they're kind of, Africa's sort of allied to them, but it's not going to give them a whole lot of power. And a lot of African countries, yeah, they, they have good feelings about China, but they're not in bed with them. Europe doesn't really like China. So who likes China? I mean, that's the problem is that the United States has a lot of people who hate the United States, especially in the Middle East, that's for sure. But in general, the United States has a lot, a lot of allies. That's why they have 800 military bases all around the world. They've got a lot of allies. China doesn't have that. China has, I, I think, one military base. I know it's in Djibouti, but they're trying to like establish maybe one other military base uh, or two other military bases. You compare that to 800. They're not even close. So that's going to be a big problem for China if they want to really take over the world or, or become a superpower, they need friends. And right now, China is not making any kind of real friendships. And that's where the United States still has a heavy, heavy, heavy lead. Of course, that can and probably will change, but I'm not so sure. I'm a bit skeptical about China's uh, ability to rise, just like I was when Japan was slated to become the next superpower back in the 1980s, and that completely flopped. And the, finally, the question is, what is the future of cryptocurrency? I think the short answer is that it's going to become big. Cryptocurrency is going to be a, is here to stay. 
for people who think it's a passing fad, it's only been around for 12 years and it's going to go away. It's a tulip mania. They don't understand how manias work. Manias in general are short-lived events. They last for months, maybe a couple of years, but it really doesn't go on for 12 years. So once something goes on for 12 years, it's kind of like people who were saying that the internet was just a fad and it's just going to go away. And there were certainly several articles in the 1990s that were proclaiming it's just a fad. Also, if you remember the dot bomb collapse after all the Super Bowl ads and around 2000, 2001, there was all this hype about the internet and it was a bunch of a, a bunch of companies crashed, including things like Webvan. If people remember Webvan, that was a delivery service. Oh my God, that's never going to work. And it was a complete catastrophe and it lost a, uh, billions of dollars. But in the end, we now have food delivery services all over the place and we have grocery delivery services all over the place. So in the end, the Webvan idea was proven out. Pets.com was a complete disaster as well. But now again, you can have pet food delivered all over the place. And there's several providers doing that as well. So a lot of the, the ideas that seem stupid in the time, they eventually kind of work their way out. They just need a little bit more time to finally mature and, and coalesce. And the same thing is true with cryptocurrencies. A lot of people are denying that cryptocurrencies are going to play a role. It's not very clear, but I can guarantee you one thing. It's going to be kind of like a internet. In the internet, nobody in the year 2000, certainly not in the year 1995, would have ever predicted that the internet would produce something like Facebook or Twitter. Nobody in a million years would have ever thought that these things were going to be doing things like Instagram or TikTok, for God's sakes. Uh, this stuff was impossible to foresee. And I think much in the same way, you're going to see the same thing with cryptocurrencies. Whatever it's going to be, it's probably not whatever we all think it's going to be. And there's going to be certain applications that we just didn't see coming. And I didn't see coming, even though I'm very much, I read a lot about it, but there's probably certain applications that are just going to surprise us in the end. But I think in general, the space is something that's here to stay. At the same time, there's going to be a ton of flops. A lot of people are going to lose money. A lot of people have already lost billions of dollars. And that's going to continue. And just like the internet, there's a ton of people, investors, even today, people are investing in, in projects that are internet related or technology related that continually flop. And the same thing is going to happen with cryptocurrency. I think you're going to see more regulation on the part of the SEC and other governmental bodies as they try to kind of uh, make sure that they get their tax revenue from this trillion dollar industry. And that's going to continue and that will probably help things in general because once people have business clarity they're going to be able to make long-term investments and and they can strategize around it knowing that certain things are fixed that will be a big deal it's not clear which cryptocurrencies are going to last the conventional wisdom says of course bitcoin and ethereum will are the two the pepsi and the and the coca-cola out there and some people believe that ethereum will overtake bitcoin with market capitalization that may in fact happen. It's true. Uh, it's it's possible. And there's a bunch of other contenders that are trying to compete against Ethereum. So you basically have two brackets. You have Bitcoin and then everybody else. That's the simplification of, of the whole cryptocurrency industry. I find it hard to believe that Bitcoin will disappear. It might become uh, less important, possibly, but I could easily see it becoming the coca-cola and becoming just well not becoming staying the coca-cola and it will simply become the de facto standard and everything will be built on bitcoin or at least most things will be built on bitcoin it's possible even though it doesn't have a very programmable interface it's possible that they have something called layer threes people have heard about layer two which is lightning network but maybe layer threes will become huge as well but to ignore cryptocurrency and to poo-poo it as so many of my people that connect with me on social media 
do. And they, so many people think it's just a passing fad. It's just going to go away. It's a Ponzi scheme, etc. Those people are just got their head in the sand and they just don't get it. And that ends this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.